it's time to explore the latest developments and discoveries in science and technology with the Wiradjuri woman and uh, science and technology editor Ray Johnston. Welcome to Night TV Radio again, Ray. Thank you so much for having me back. Really looking forward to telling you all about the latest in science and technology news for this week. Now, our first story of the week is about uh, archaeologists uh, who've been able to map hidden Northern Territory landscapes uh, where first Australians lived more than 60,000 years ago. Yeah, so this is from researchers at Flinders University. They've used some pretty cool tech to look both underground and also from above to look a little bit closer at the Red Lily Lagoon area in West Arnhem Land. Now, they used a method that's called electric resistivity tomography, which is just a fancy way of saying that they can map really large areas of land quickly and cheaply to better understand their ancient history. And the best part about this technology is that they can locate new archaeological sites without disturbing the area there too much. And from this most recent research, they've found some really interesting stuff about how this place was affected when the sea levels rose about 8,000 years ago. Because it turns out that the ocean reached this area, which is now inland, And this fact has big implications for understanding the oldest archaeological site on the continent and also for understanding the rock art in the area because basically the science looked at the sediments that were buried under the floodplains and they were able to see there how the mangroves grew and how they supported the animals and the marine life in the region, which in turn, of course, influenced the rock art in that area. And they've even discovered that the timing of the rock art, it coincides with changes in the environment, like when freshwater habitats started appearing. And it shows that the art ended up having subjects like fish and and crocs and birds from those times. So the researchers, they reckon that this changes our understanding of early human occupation in the continent. And this research is obviously a big deal for traditional owners in that area as well. They were co-authors on this study and they say that it's really important for people to know what was happening there thousands and thousands of years ago. So exciting stuff. Yeah, there's also another development uh, worth mentioning this week, shining a light on uh, dark web and the wildlife trade. Yeah, so there is a lot of wildlife being sold on the internet. This is something that not a lot of people are really aware of. And there was a study done by researchers at the University of Adelaide, and they looked at e-commerce marketplaces, private forums, and messaging apps that are the most popular ways to buy and sell live animals, plants, fungi, like mushrooms, and also their parts and products online. But the researchers, they also checked if wildlife was being traded on the dark web. Now, the dark web is is pretty much known as where all the dodgy stuff happens because it's much harder to track what's going on there. And they found, even in the short period of time they were researching, they found 153 different species being traded there. Most of the ads they found were for plants and fungi, which were mostly advertised for their use as drugs or medicine. Even animals 
there were being traded for use as drugs, including the Colorado River Toad, which is known for releasing a toxin from its skin that can make you see some pretty crazy stuff, I think it's safe to say. It's it's a hallucinogen, the, the skin's toxin there. Now, for now, most of the wildlife is being traded on regular online marketplaces and private forums. So law enforcement, they can focus on those areas, But if things change in the future, we might start to see more wildlife being sold on the dark web where it is harder to track, harder to find who is selling it, where it's all coming from, and it's harder to stop. And Australia is actually part of a group of countries that agreed not to trade endangered species. It's called the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. That's the name of the group. And the researchers of this study in particular, they say that this country needs to be doing more to collect data and information on the internet trade of wildlife and to be doing more reporting on any illegal trading that they do come across to help really stamp this out. Yeah, and uh, this one is one that I like very much because tourism and tourists are usually uh, viewed in a very negative way, especially when it comes to environmental degradation. But it appears that uh, citizen science projects uh, give tourists a chance to give back to nature. Yeah, this is lovely. So citizen science projects, they're becoming really popular around the world because people are really keen to conserve our natural environment and also to enjoy the great outdoors at the same time. So citizen science projects, they mean that everyday folks can volunteer their time, use things like their mobile phones and web-based data collection to help with vital conservation and ecology efforts. So researchers from Flinders University, they are leading a federally funded Passport to Recovery citizen science project. It's on Kangaroo Island. And they're using some really innovative approaches to expand their project both this year and in the year 2024. And they say that tourists and the tourism industry's participation in citizen science is growing and it's producing some really impactful data on threatened or endangered wildlife in parks and in remote locations and even about marine environments from recreational scuba divers. They're seeing an increasing effort to use tourists in citizen science projects to support environmental management or conservation goals. And there's potential for citizen science tourism to foster even broader awareness of environmental issues, including regenerative uh, tourism experiences for domestic and international tourists. So the benefits of inviting the public to take part, you know, that There's the personal growth of the citizens who take part. We get enhanced scientific knowledge and cost savings as well from more participation. And there's the development of that social capital, that feeling that you are part of the community and you're doing something well. So, yeah, let's get the tourists involved as well as the locals and help get on board with some more citizen science projects. And uh, now this one, flood-threatened communities uh, are strengthened by uh, their collective insights. Uh, can you tell us how this uh, happens and how how is that? So 
The devastating floods in New South Wales and Queensland in 2022, they've given us some really valuable insights into how to prepare for and respond to disasters in the future. There were researchers from the Natural Hazards Research Australia team. They teamed up with Macquarie University, the University of Southern Queensland and the Queensland University of Technology. So all local unis and research organisations in those areas that were also affected by floods. And they've conducted some independent research on the community experiences of the floods. They interviewed 192 residents affected by the floods and they surveyed another 430 residents online. And this research captures the unique experiences of the people that were impacted by the floods. And out of that research, it suggests that issues like community connection and communication, local capacity for action, flexibility in disaster adaptation and also personal control over decision-making. They all have a big impact on how people are affected by natural disasters. So this report, this provides really valuable information that can be used to improve flood safety across the country and it's going to inform strategies to manage severe weather in the future as well. So a big thank you to everyone who took part in this research, who was interviewed for it and was surveyed for it, because it will help strengthen communities in the future that are faced with similar disasters. Ray Johnston, thank you very much for bringing to us a more interesting, entertaining and informative uh, developments in science and technology once again this week. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the super light tree runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A L L B I R D S.com code SUPER24.